Well, it's always good to have you at the crossing with us. And if this is your first time, we're just really honored to have you here. We just think God's doing some amazing things here and is glad that you are a part of it. And not only do I like to welcome the people in the room, I like to welcome those who are part of the service, but outside of the room. So I want to welcome our Southeast campus, everybody who's watching online, those on our microsites, let's give them a big hand. Glad you're part of the crossing family with us. Well, Thanksgiving is just around the corner. And if your family was anything like my family, we always had two tables for Thanksgiving. We had an adult table and a kid's table. Now, the adult table was just your regular dining room table and all the decorations on it. But the kid's table was like the card table that was brought in from the garage. And it really didn't matter how old you were. You didn't get a move to the adult table until somebody died. There was a seat that opened up. But you always wanted to sit at the adult table. When Darla and I started dating, I knew it was serious when I was invited to her house for Thanksgiving meal. Now, her her dad was just larger than life, incredibly successful, highly respected. All of Darla's sisters were married, and they were married to pastors, four pastors there at the table. She had four sisters. And so I was a high school kid invited to their Thanksgiving meal, and I was so nervous. But to be invited to that table meant that I belonged, that I was accepted. See, that is what the table means to us. It means that you belong. It means that you are accepted. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9, that we are in episode 6 of our series on the life of David that we're calling Flawed Hero. And today, we come to one of the greatest examples of grace in the entire Old Testament. And as king, David had a table. And to sit around the king's table was a big deal because the the king's table was filled with powerful people, the elite, the connected. And if you were invited to sit at the king's table, it meant that you belonged, that you were accepted. Well, let me just kind of catch you up to where we are in the story of David's life. David becomes the second king of Israel. Saul was the first king of Israel, and he was a disaster. And so God removes him and puts David in his place. And the reason that God chose David was not because of his political savvy. It was not because he was a warrior and he was able to lead the army to war. The reason that he chose David was for one reason. It was his heart, because David had a heart like God's. And when David became king, he consolidated his power, and usually that meant killing everyone connected to the former king. But David was no ordinary king. David was best friends with a guy by the name of Jonathan, and Jonathan was the son of King Saul. Jonathan was the next in line to be the king. And everybody loved Jonathan. Everybody loved him, admired him. But Jonathan knew that his dad was going to be removed as king, that God was going to remove him. And Jonathan knew that he was not going to be the next king. He knew that his friend David would be the next king. And he asked David to make a promise to him. He says, when you become king, would you just make a promise that you won't kill me and that you will show kindness to my family? And so David makes this promise 
to his friend. Well, not long after that, both Jonathan and King Saul were killed in battle. And David mourns for them both, and then David becomes the king. And a few years later, he remembers this promise that he made to his friend Jonathan. We're going to pick up the story, 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. It says, David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, when we think of this word kindness right here, what we think of is, is we think of, of treating people well, being friendly. But this word is more than that. The Hebrew word for this word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. Now, I just want to just teach you a little Hebrew today, so I want you to say this out loud with me. Let's say this together. Hesed. Okay, to really say it right, you have to gurgle in the back of your throat. It's really like hesed is how you say it, but I didn't want you to spit on the people around you, so I just thought we wouldn't do that. That this word right here means keeping a covenant. That's what this word means. This word is a covenant-keeping promise. Hesed means that you are going to do what you promised even if the person that you're giving it to, even if their actions are not right. It doesn't matter about them. It describes a covenant relationship. Here's what David is saying. He's saying, is there someone that I can show compassion? Because I made a covenant to my friend Jonathan. I made a promise to him that when I became king, that I would show him kindness. So I want to keep that promise. This is a covenant-keeping compassion. It says, Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. And the king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? We see this being fleshed out a little bit more, this hesed word. Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Now, you have to kind of read between the lines in the story. Because David asked, is there anyone left in Jonathan's family that I can show grace? Is there anyone left in Jonathan's family that I can keep this promise that I made to my friend? And the servant says, yes, but you need to know something. That there is a son of Jonathan, but he has a serious disability. He can't walk. He is lame in both feet. In other words, someone like this doesn't fit in the king's court. In fact, his disability disqualifies him from being a royal. Well, we know how this happened. We know how he became disabled, how he became lame in both feet. Just a few chapters before this in chapter four, it just gives us this little parenthetical note. It says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. So we learn a little bit about this, that when, when Saul's kingdom fell, word gets back that Saul and Jonathan are dead. And so there is chaos that is ensuing. People are running for their lives because they know that they're next. That anybody who's left in that household knows that they are going to be killed next. So in an attempt to save five-year-old Mephibosheth, 
his nurse, or we might call her his nanny, picks him up to try to take him to a safe location, and she picks him up and falls, breaking both of his legs, and he becomes permanently disabled. Well, David asks, he says, where is he, the king asked. And Ziba answered, he is at the house of, of Makar, son of Emiliel, in Lodabar. Now, Lodabar, this word right here, lo means no, and debar means pasture. No pasture is what that stands for. That this means it was a barren place. It, it was the desert that he spent his life hiding in a desolate place. Now, just kind of picture a trailer out in the middle of the desert somewhere. You know, picture yourself, you're driving past Baker, you're driving past that thermometer that never works, and then you look off to the right, and there's just this trailer sitting out in the middle of nowhere. That's what this was. That's what this was like. Lodabar is a place of hiding, because Mephibosheth was fearful for his life, so he has been hiding for years, that he was forgotten, that he lost his identity because he was a prince, but he's lost his identity. And the only one who knows where he is is Saul's former servant. But let me just pause here for just a minute because I don't want us to, to go past this too quickly. Some of you are in Lodabar right now because Lodabar is not just a location. It's a situation. Some of you are in that barren place. Some of you are in, in Lodabar spiritually. You are in a barren place spiritually. You have not felt close to God for a long time. And you feel forgotten. Some of you are in Lodabar relationally. You are in this barren place relationally. And you feel isolated and you have been in hiding for a long time. So I believe that God speaks to us in this situation and in this place. Well, David says to his servant, I want you to go get him. I want you to go get him. And it says, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied, Mephibosheth has been traveling to meet David, and he's scared to death for his life. He thinks that he's going to be killed. He thinks that, that David has finally, you know, fully taken power. He's consolidated all of his power, and he wants to make sure that there is no one left from King Saul's household, from his kingdom, that they're all gone, and he's scared. And David knows this, because David says to him, he says, don't be afraid. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I'll restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will always eat at my table. That I want to show you hesed, a loving kindness that comes from this promise that I made to your dad. That I'm not going to kill you. That I'm going to restore you to a place of honor. And you will always eat at my table. It says, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? That he spent his whole life being forgotten. I used to be somebody, but now I'm a nobody. I've been hiding for years. Why would you, the king of Israel, why would you, David, the, the famous one, 
Why would you even notice me? It says, then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth's grand, and Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, look at this, like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. See, the writer of Samuel just wants to remind us, this is unusual for the king. This is unusual to allow someone like this at the table. But notice the change of address. The change of address is, it used to be Lodabar, but now it's Jerusalem. He goes from the place of shame and hiding to the place of peace, eating at the king's table. And and sitting around the king's table, it's not about food. It's about who's at the table. It's having access to the king. That he now has access to the king. Can you imagine what that would have been like sitting around the table with David? You know, all the kids going, Dad, tell us again what it was like. And he says, well, when Goliath got up, he is this great big old guy. You know, and I I took out my slingshot and I'd slung it around and it hit him in the forehead. And when he fell all of the earth, you could just feel it shake. I mean, it just went down with a thud. Maybe he told the stories, the crazy stories of the day. I mean, that's what we do around the dinner table, is we tell the crazy stories of the day. And maybe he's just telling the crazy stories of the kingdom. Like, let me tell you who I had to deal with today. Just telling these crazy stories. Because being at the king's table was not about the food. It was about having access to the king. Well, I want to give you a couple applications for us because I think there are a couple huge learnings for us in this story right here. And I will frame these all around the metaphor of having a seat around the table. Because having a seat around the table, it represents two things. Here's the first thing that it represented. To have a seat at the table means that we are adopted into God's family. That we are adopted into God's family. Look at this verse again. It says, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth was not a guest at the table. In every sense of the word, he was adopted. He was like a son. See, here's what it meant to be adopted in that culture. To be adopted in that culture meant that you have a new father, that you are fully a part of the new family. All the rights, all the privileges, all of the responsibilities. The second thing is that your old life was completely erased. That your debts and obligations from your past life, they're canceled. You've gone from Lodabar to the place of hiding to Jerusalem, the place of peace. That you are regarded as a new person. And then here's the third thing that it represented, is that you were an heir to the estate. See, this is what David did for Mephibosheth, is he restores everything from his royal inheritance that came from his grandfather. 
Everything is restored. And adoption, it is not a gradual change. It is an immediate change. It's an immediate change. He went from Lodabar to Jerusalem immediately. And he was sitting at the table, not as a servant, not as a guest, as a son. A friend of mine adopted a little girl a few years ago. She came into their lives when when she was a baby. That this, this little girl's biological mom was unable to take care of her. And so it took a couple years to finally adopt her. They went through all of the process of adopting her, and finally they had a court case. Finally they were going to be able to go and go before the judge and to officially adopt her. And so he actually had other kids. They all got dressed up. They all got on suits and they were dressed up. They went to court because there was a ceremony. And at the ceremony, this is the oath that they took. They said, I am accepting her as a full heir with all the rights and privileges as if if she was born to me as my other children. This is what God did for you. This is what God has done for you and for me. Here's how the Apostle Paul talks about this in Galatians. He says, but when the set time had fully come, this is what we celebrate as Christmas when Jesus has come. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption to sonship because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. That you are a son, you're a daughter, you are no longer a slave. That is your old life, that is your past life. That when you became a follower of Jesus, you are now a son. You are now a daughter. And we receive the Holy Spirit as a sign of that. That God has given us the spirit of Jesus to live inside of us. And that is the seal of your adoption. I was thinking about what happened this last Sunday. We had 162 baptisms at our two campuses. Absolutely amazing. We saw this adoption ceremony for hundreds of people. I wish I could share with you all the stories that I heard. We had husbands and wives come and they were baptized together. We had three sisters. There were three sisters who all decided that they wanted to be baptized last week. Entire families surrendered their life to Jesus to be baptized. I talked to one person who had a serious addiction. And they said, I'm just ready to surrender every part of my life to Jesus. We had an 82-year-old lady who was baptized. She was the former Miss Nevada. She dated Elvis Presley. And she came for the first time on Sunday, and she gave her life to Jesus, and she was baptized. Her daughter has been praying for her for years. We had 60 people who were baptized at the six. Let me just tell you about one story. One story is there was actually a guy here, a buddy of mine, who was here on Sunday morning. And he said that when I, when I began to count, he said, I wanted to stand up, but there was just something inside of me I just couldn't. 
He said, I got into my car and I drove away. And he says, I drove around all Sunday afternoon just wrestling with God about this decision. Just wrestling with God. He said, finally, I said to God, you know what? If there are still people here tonight, I'll be baptized. He didn't know we had a Sunday night service. He pulled up at 5.45 and the parking lot's full and he's like, okay. He said, I sat in the service again and when you counted to three, I stood up. He said, it's time. It's time for me to finally surrender my life to Jesus. Listen, if you become a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized, this is your next step and we want to help you in your faith journey. We want to help you make that decision. On Monday night, I was watching Drew Brees of the New Orleans Saints. They had Drew Brees, if you're a football fan, he had the all-time passing record of any quarterback. He surpassed Peyton Manning on Monday. And what I loved is you come to the end, and he's with his sons, his three sons, and he's talking to them, and it was so precious because he just said to his sons, he brings them all in, and he says to his sons, he goes, if you work hard, you can accomplish your dreams too. I loved it. But his sons, they weren't there because they had a VIP pass. They weren't there because they were somebody famous and they got let in. They were there because their daddy gave them access onto the field. They were there because they were sons of their father. See, sometimes we feel like we don't belong. We feel like we don't belong, but that is such a lie that you have been adopted as a son, as a daughter, that you are no longer a slave, that whatever your past was is gone. You are now God's child. To have a seat at the table means that we are adopted into God's family. Here's the second thing it means for us. To have a seat at the table means that we are dispensers of God's compassion. That we are now dispensers of God's compassion. As David called it, hesed. Which translated means God's kindness. And hesed is not primarily something you feel. It is something you do. It is something that you do for somebody who can't do anything in return for you. It is a covenant-keeping compassion. Let me say it this way. Compassion is not an action. Compassion is an action, not a feeling. Compassion isn't feeling sorry for someone in need. It is doing something for someone who is in need. And it is based on a covenant relationship. It is based on a promise that you made. And here's where some of you go, oh, okay, so you're not talking to me because I've never made a promise to show compassion. Yes, you did. If you became a follower of Jesus, you made that promise. You signed up for that. When Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? Jesus summed up the 613 commandments in the Old Testament to two. It's to love God and love people. And then the night before Jesus was crucified, he boiled it down to one. Here's what he says. He says, a new command I give you to love one another. Well, that doesn't sound like a new command. We've heard that before, but here's the new command. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. Jesus gives us a new command. A new command that we become dispensers of God's compassion. I was reading an article this week 
about which segment of people are the most generous. Do you want to know which segment of people in the United States are most generous? It is not the rich. In fact, this is, this is the truth. The richer you become, the less that you will give away percentage-wise. You want to know who the most generous are? Those who are poor. Why? Because they know what it feels like to be poor. That our brokenness and pain become a catalyst for us to dispense compassion. That our scars, the scars that we have in our life, they become a catalyst for us to show God's kindness. You see, Mephibosheth wasn't the only broken person at that table. When he's sitting at the table as one of the king's sons, he's not the only broken person there. Think about who else was around that table. There was Amnon. And Amnon was the oldest of the royal kids. That he was in line to be the next king of Israel. But he would be assassinated for violating his sister. You have Absalom. He's the good-looking, powerful son of David. But he would lead a revolt to try to take the kingdom away from David. Across from him was Joab. Joab was the commander of David's army. But he would later kill Absalom to protect David. There was Tamar. Tamar was the beautiful daughter of King David. And she was raped by her half-brother sitting at that table. Talk about the wounds and the scars that she would carry for the rest of her life. Later on would be Solomon, who was the wisest man to ever live, but he would allow his wives to lead him away from God. All of us carry our brokenness to the table. All of us, we carry our brokenness to the table, and that becomes the catalyst for us to be dispensers of God's compassion. That's the catalyst for us. Look what the Apostle Paul shares with us in 2 Corinthians. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that... Here's the reason why God comforts you in all of your troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God, so that. So you take all of your brokenness and you use that as a catalyst to show compassion. To have a seat at the table means that we are adopted into God's family. And it means that we are the hands and feet of Jesus, dispensing compassion to those who need it. So let me just ask you a couple questions. Here's this first one. What does living out your identity in Christ look like for you? See, you were adopted. You were adopted as a child of God. You have a new identity. So what does it look like for you to live out your new identity? That if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment of heaven. God says, you want to know, you want to know how you're going to have heaven? I'm going to put the Holy Spirit in you as a down payment of all your inheritance. That when Jesus came to this earth to sacrifice himself, 
He gave up his seat at the table so that you could have a seat at the table, so that you could be his sons and his daughters and have the full rights of a child of God. But here's where some of you are. I just want to be honest with you. Some of you are still living like you don't belong at the table. When you were adopted, your old life was erased. It was washed away. You are not who you used to be. You may not yet be who you want to be, but you're not who you used to be. How would your life change if you really believed that you were God's son? How would your life change if you really believed that you were a daughter of God? Because that's who you are. Here's the second question. Where are you being called to dispense compassion? Where are you being called to give compassion? See, you look at your life and you wonder why you've gone through certain things. You wonder why you've been broken in life. You wonder why you've had the struggles that you've had. Listen, I don't know the answers to why, but I know the what. I know what you're supposed to do. You comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that you yourselves have received from God. Because compassion is not a feeling. It is a doing. It is a covenant-keeping compassion. And when we love like Jesus loved, and when we serve like Jesus served, we are fulfilling the command that Jesus gave to love one another. What does love require of you? So I want to pray with you. But I think for some of you, it's beginning to to answer these questions in your own heart. What needs to change? I'm a child of God, so how do I need to start living this new reality? And who is God calling me to show compassion to? Who is he calling me? Not if, it's who. God, we come to you and we thank you for this incredible story. This incredible story of grace that we find here in the Old Testament. And it is this same grace that each of us have received that we have been allowed to have a seat at the table. We've been accepted. We belong. So God, help us to live in this new reality of who we are, who you created us to be. So God, we give you our life. We give you our heart. We surrender all of this to you again. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who died to open up a seat for us. Amen.